This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode of WMFA is brought to you by Scrivener, the go-to app for novelists of all kinds. Written by writers for writers, Scrivener provides you with everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. Born and raised in New Orleans, Margaret studied creative writing at Dartmouth College and law at UC Berkeley. Her debut novel, A Kind of Freedom, was a 2017 National Book Award nominee, a New York Times Notable Book of 2017, and a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice. Her work has been published in the New York Times Book Review, Oprah.com, Lenny Letter, the Massachusetts Review, Gray Sparrow Journal, and other publications. A Kind of Freedom spans three generations of a black family in New Orleans as they love, thrive, and struggle against larger societal powers of racial inequality. First Jim Crow, then the war on drugs and mass incarceration. It's a moving and important American story that is still ultimately about people. Margaret doesn't go for easy answers or shallow characterizations, and her thorough research and eye for detail make the book come to life. I always love when WMFA guests are game to deep dive on process, and Margaret definitely was. You'll find a lot of craft talk in this conversation, including Margaret's tactic for finding a character's voice and how she arrived at the novel's structure. We also talk about putting spirit to work for your writing, listening to your inner voice, heeding inspiration, and following the writing that you don't think is going anywhere. Any kind of story that's specific to an individual, but that speaks to a universal issue and that'll speak to an audience in a universal way, is, is a way to, um, to tell these big, big stories, but make it seem um, identifiable and not like preachy, you know? Um, so I guess let's get started by, you know, I was really curious if you originally envisioned it as this kind of big multi-generational narrative or if maybe a character came to you first or kind of how the genesis began? Well, I always knew that I would have the Evelyn section take place in the 40s. And I always knew that I would have the TC section take place in present time and that we would go from this very polished narrative in the in the first generation to you know to this this man who's in and out of jail and and dealing drugs and all that sort of stuff so that you know I, I always knew that those two guideposts would would help me to portray the decline that I wanted to represent um but I didn't know what had happened in the middle like I didn't know about TC's mother's generation or father's generation and and what had come between those two generations the grandmothers and the grandsons to create that sort of decline or to facilitate it. And so I had to figure that out. I had to figure out what was happening in the second generation, the generation in the eighties. And I also didn't know that it would weave in and out. I always knew that we would end on Evelyn's uh, wedding. Excuse me for the spoiler. I always knew that I, I, cause I thought it was such a, I thought it was a really cool way to show how she had all this hope and and yet the reader knows that some of that hope, most of it is unfounded, you know, 
And so I thought that would be interesting to end, to just kind of time travel that way and end with her hope in the 40s. And yet we already know what's come to pass in her family. And um, But I didn't know that it would weave in and out. I thought, this is something my editor told me to do, but I, I thought maybe it would it would be in blocks, like we would do TC section first and then his mother's and then Evelyn's. I thought that would have been pretty cool too. But my um, editor thought it would be better to weave in and out. And I think she was probably right. Yeah, I think that's a really hard decision. Um, and it probably does help to have someone who hasn't been living in it for so long. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, what you say about the ending, it's really interesting, too, because I was in preparation for a conversation. I was reading some other some reviews of the book. And, and you know, there are some it is open to interpretation of just how much hope like kind of like whether you are ending on a hopeful note. You know, right. um, and and so there were definitely reviews that read it that way, but but I I think I was kind of more inclined to read it the way that you're describing, where you you know you you know it's not going to be it's not going to be everything that she thinks, and and it's just kind of the sinking feeling. Yeah, and I mean, even if even if because I do think TC, you know, of course, ideally he gets his act together, and I think he probably does get his act together. But even if you read it that way with TC getting his act together, it's still like if I were a grandmother looking down on my generations, I would think, God, what happened here? I mean, even the best case scenario is not great. You know, even if he gets his act together, we still had these generations that have um, that have really been compromised and challenged considerably. So I. Um, yeah, so and that's just kind of in the same vein of what you were saying. I I think I think even in the best case scenario her hope is is um she's not going to she's not going to have everything she's hoping for. Was was she inspired by anybody um you know she's such a I don't know Evelyn and Ruby are just such I mean all the characters are so well developed but like they're just um such fascinating women. Oh, thank you. She's, she's, Evelyn is, um, inspired by my grandmother, but you know, not, not in any factual way. It's just kind of the spirit behind it, I guess. She feels like my grandmother to me, like the same feeling tone. Um, and, and then my grandmother has a sister and she has two sisters. She had two sisters, but, um, but the one I was thinking of was her sister Lillian. And, um, I don't know. You know, honestly, I never saw them have like a bickering relationship. They didn't, they weren't together a lot. So you have to assume there was tension there because they didn't spend that much time together, even though they lived in the same city. And I know they went years without talking, but I didn't know that until after I wrote it. But I don't know. Again, it was like the spirit of the relationship. I didn't know anything about the relationship or nor had I seen them, you know, really talk much between each other. But it was like the spirit of it. It was kind of like what I imagined it would have been like for them. And I know that my grandmother was a little bit more like, um, a little bit more like conservative and polished. And I think her sister was a little bit more carefree. Yeah. And it just kind of took that and ran with that. Something that I think a lot about with my writing about Appalachia, and I would be curious to see if this uh, has any resonance with you is, you know, when you're looking at those three generations and you say, like, you kind of didn't know as much what happened in the 80s, like, you know, I, I think a lot about 
women of my grandmother's generation um, and, and sort of the very specific lifestyles and challenges that they had to endure. Um, and then, you know, it's obviously very easy for us to think about what those challenges are in modern life, but or like, you know, right now, but, but for instance, like, and I, you know, I just this morning was, uh, interviewing a chef friend of mine in Appalachia for a profile I'm writing of him. And we were talking about this kind of skipped generation effect in, in Appalachia when you, when you think about return to interest in food or return to interest in the land, like our parents were the generation that rejected all of that. Mm. So it's kind of this really, it, it is kind of this blank page in a very different way where you're like, well, I don't quite know what the motivations are here and what the, you know, what the struggles are. They don't seem quite as, um, I don't know. They almost seem like a little bit more like generic or something like, like that generation went for like a very, a very kind of standard. The goal was a very standard American experience, you know? Yeah. I, I think I understand what you're saying. And, and it, I think that made it hard and especially because, um, I, I lived during that generation too. You know, I was a child, but I was present and it was just hard to trace it because I was there. And to me, it seemed very standard. And I don't know if that's just because it was it was really my my formative experience, but um, I almost I almost didn't even put in a second generation. I almost just did TC and Evelyn. And somebody recommended that. I think it was another, not my agent, but another agent's um, reader. Yeah, I'm pretty sure of that. She said that um, I could just take it out, and I just. I, I didn't, I mean, I didn't agree with that and nobody else did either, but I almost did it just because I could not figure out what the link would be. It mm. took me time. Yeah. That's such a hard, um, that's such a hard question. I'm, I'm dealing with a kind of similar thing right now where there's a character whose voice I just like really can't get. And I don't know if the answer, you know, it, it's that line between like, am I not getting it because it's not working? Or yeah. am I not getting it because it's not there yet? And and how did you? So how did you with that particular problem? How did you ultimately decide what to do? I just um, well, I had this section written, and it was obviously the weakest part of the section. Not not the current one, but the draft I had, and it was obviously the weakest point. I mean, it was just it wasn't it wasn't well done, and also the character wasn't really developed, and, and the storyline was very winding. Um, and so I, what did I do? Um, I, you know what I did? And I always do this. I, I just kept writing it. Like I would come up with different storylines. Um, sometimes I come up with different versions of characters or, or characters in different ages, like, you know, a younger version of that character or like, um, sometimes I'll do, cause I, I just did this with the second thing I'm working on. I couldn't get this voice. And so I, st- and I couldn't get the right story either. Like sometimes the problem is you're at the wrong stage of the story. And mm. so, um, my new thing that I've been doing, and I think I've been doing this for a while, but I finally figured it out is just like, Oh, this story doesn't work. Let me go to a different story in this character's life or, or, um, or let me go to a different time in this character's life. Um, I play with the characters a little bit, but usually it's the same character. It's just that if I go to a different stage of the character's life, I can I can access the voice better. Mm, I like that. And in their life, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I wanted to so ask think- you generally kind of how you got to know these characters because they are so... Um, 
they are so distinctive and so they feel so lively. Well, TC and Evelyn, that was just, you know, God given. I didn't, I mean, I I think that's right. I mean, I I did research on them, but their voices, I always knew. Do you know what I mean? I did research. Mm -hmm, Of course. But I always had their voices from the beginning. I had TC and Evelyn's voice. It was Jackie's that I really had to work at. And um, it's unfortunate when that happens because I I really don't think, I think, I just don't think it's ever going to be as good when you have to put that effort in. It's like you can see the author's fingerprints on a character. And, um, but, but I've, I've noticed that that's kind of how it goes for me. Like I'll have two thirds of a book and it's just, it just flows. And then the the other third, I just really have to kind of grapple with and it it doesn't work. And I mean, I'll get it to a point where it works, but it's never going to feel as smooth to me as when it just, you know, when it just comes out. But I mean, well, let me say this. I always had their voices, but I had to figure out their storyline because um, it's hard for me to it's hard for me to figure out what a story looks like on the page. I can figure out the themes and um, also I'm, I'm good at dialogue, but like actually telling the story and making sure things are moving forward. Like there's a motor in the book. Right. Pulling the reader forward. That's hard for me. So I had I took a long time to figure out what's actually going to happen to these characters and how are they going to move forward, um, and um, and how am I going to keep the reader engaged and um, basically plot. So, but it's a subtle plot, you know. But but it's still it's still there. So figuring that out was an issue, and then finally I did research when I had written the stories in their voices. I did research on. Um, like how they talked or what they would have been wearing or, um, you know, what they ate, what they looked like, like that kind of thing was a lot where they lived. That, that was all, you know, research. And for Evelyn's generation, that would have been, um, done through reading primarily, but for TC's generation, I just talked to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What did you, what kind of things were you reading? A lot of people have written about New Orleans in the um, in the forties, and so I was just reading. There's a book called Black Life in Old New Orleans by Keith Medley, for instance, Keith Weldon Medley. Um, Sybil Moriel has written a book about her life growing up in the Jim Crow South in New Orleans. She's um, our former mayor's wife and our former mayor's mother, because we have two mayors, two Morials that were mayors. Um, and stuff like that, you know, personal accounts and, um, and just, uh, and just books about the city. Um, I read books about Katrina. I watched documentaries about Katrina. Um, for Jackie's section, I read a, a lot about the war on drugs. Um, but for TC section, I really did talk to a lot of kids, you know, in their twenties and I talked to them about their lifestyle. And, and I got, I got a feel for how they talk, the slang that they use. Um, and, and, you know, some of, some of, a lot of the people who formed my portrayal of TC are in my family cousins. And so I just know them. And so it was nice that I could just pick up the phone and talk to them and, and, and get a feel for how they would say things or how they would do things or how they would think about things and get a feel for really how their life has been compromised by, um, by the criminal justice system. Yeah. Yeah. How did they feel about, um, 
you know, the, the fact that you were interested in their lives like that to that degree? I think that they were, um, well, I think one cousin in particular, I think he was happy to help me. I think he was really happy to help me. We grew up as brother and sister and we're cousins. We're first cousins. And, um, so we're, we're close, but I think he was happy to be able to help. And I think, I think he was proud to be able to help, to be honest. Right. That's my opinion. But, um, he never said that, but I could tell. And one day I went over to his house to interview him and he had assembled like four of his friends Mm -hmm. from the neighborhood and they were all ready and they were waiting on me when I got there and they were all ready with interviews and he was, you know, prodding them along with questions and stuff. I think he was really happy to help. I love that. Cause I mean, it's so that, that level of care is not always necessarily taken and that, that degree of, um, intention. Yeah. You know, it was tricky because you don't, you have, you, you know, I did want to be really careful about, um, I didn't want to exploit him and I didn't want to exploit the situation he's in because he is in a, he's in, he's in a challenging situation. And I wanted to be careful about that because he's my cousin. And, um, and it, you know, the same goes for his friends. I just wanted to respect the situation, but I, I, I really think it was, I think it was good because I, I was able to portray that character in a really compassionate way because I had spent, because it was so important to me to present the story with care Mm -hmm. and because I knew those people, you know what I mean? So, so I was able to present the story in a way that really, um, you know, it didn't present them as perfect angels, but it, it really showed the degree to which they're compromised from the very beginning and the degree to which it's very likely that they'll end up, um, that they'll end up involved or entangled in, in the criminal justice system. If they, you know, if they're born in a certain time in a certain city and live in a certain neighborhood, it really is, um, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to rob them of their agency, but a lot of that stuff is just so systemic. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's, that's what's so remarkable about it. I think the way that you've handled it is because I mean, sure, you know, they're compromised and TC and his friend, you know, there's, they're not perfect people, but when you, are talking about parts of the population that do find themselves in those, dem- you know, I'm thinking about like in Appalachia, it, it, my mind like translates that from my experience to like the opioid crisis. Oh, it's, yeah, it's sure. like, yeah, you can be, if you're a member of that population that there is a national narrative around you already, yeah. the, the expectation is that the counter to that narrative is that you're perfect. And if you're yeah. not perfect, then, That's then right. you're that thing. That's right. That's right. So I really, I really liked how he, you know, he's, he's doing his best in a sense, you know, maybe sometimes he's not, but he's, he's looking at, he's being realistic about the, about the situation he's in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that was a note that I I had actually to, to talk to you about is I do in general, I really liked your touch with that. You know, the characters are all portrayed very lovingly, but but also very uncompromisingly. And and I'm sure um, that was difficult sometimes. <laughs> so I wanted to just ask you kind of where, you know, how much of that was their voices sort of leading you through the story and how much was you in edits thinking like, oh, this maybe hits too hard, hits a note too hard, or I need to back off this idea, something like that. 
That's a really good question. I don't think anybody has ever asked me that. You know, my instinct is telling me I, I didn't really, I don't think I edited that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I don't think I was editing from that angle. So it must have been, I mean, I can't think of an example of a, of a time when I edited from that angle. Like, let me tone this down because this is a little bit too, it seems like it would have happened with TC because you know, his character, you could see his character kind of like, um, veering in that direction, but I don't think I did. I think it was, I think I thought about where I was going to go before I started writing with that, with that character and also with Evelyn. So I don't really feel like, no, I don't really feel like I did that. I, I ended up adding a lot more racism to, um, to Evelyn's section and actually also to TC's. Mm. I feel like there wasn't as much police um, in the, in the first draft, there wasn't as much police, um, presence in either, in either. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, in Jackie's, I think I must've made the decision at some point in Jackie's. I don't think it came through an edit. I think I just probably made the decision early on not to be too graphic about the crack epidemic. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm sure that was something that I was thinking about in the beginning. Um, just because of the nature of it, but I must have decided that it wasn't going to be about that. It was kind of like a, you know, it was definitely a core part of the narrative, but it was presented peripherally. And um, I must have made that decision early on that I wasn't going to have it, you know, because you could have, you could, for, you could kind of imagine a, um, that section becoming, you know, filled with images of crack houses and right, and it, it didn't go into that. So I'm thinking I must have, I must have figured that out early. Yeah. And I mean, that that kind of treatment, too, can get so, you know, it can fetishize it so fast. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if that's not, you know, she was she was kind of dealing with it. Um, well, maybe not quite peripherally because of Terry, but at least wasn't dealing with it with herself. Right. And, it, you know, it's funny, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking I, I think I did the same thing. I remember making the, the decision to do the same thing with Katrina. Mm. Because I didn't want to tell the Katrina story. Mm-hmm. I just didn't want to. And so, but you can't write about New Orleans in that time period and not mention it heavily because people are walking around New Orleans who went through Katrina and they think about it every day. Mm-hmm. So, you, I mean, you have to, I had to have TC's character be thinking about it all the time, but I didn't want to tell the story of the flood, you know, mm-hmm. and of the levees breaking and the, and the, all. I didn't want to do that. So, um, yeah, that was definitely, I remember making that choice. And I even, someone told me I had kind of erred on the side of not talking about it enough. My agent told me that and I had to add a bunch of Katrina stuff, but I just didn't want to, I just didn't want to tell that story. But I think it was, I think it was good the way, it, you know, you see it in his, in, in the exposition so much because he's thinking about it all the time. But, um, but it's not something we actually see the character go through. Right, right. And I seem to remember, Roughly the same time as A Kind of Freedom came out, there was a a kind of more Katrina-focused novel out. Yeah, The Floating World came yes. out. Yes. Like, yeah, yeah. When did The Floating World come out? I guess it came out in October. Yeah, Morgan's book came out in October. And that is a Katrina book. That is a Katrina book. Yeah. How did you, um, in general, like approach presenting New Orleans. Did you come into it? I mean, I know, I know that's where you're from. Um, did you come into it feeling a certain way about how it normally is or is not represented? 
No, I didn't. It's funny. I, um, I, people will say a lot, you know, you really see the insider's view of New Orleans and you don't see the, you know, the tourist view of New Orleans that you normally associate with the city. And I didn't do that on purpose. It was just that I just, I just painted the, the aspects of the city that I knew. And because I grew up there as a child, I don't really know it any other way. You know, I left New Orleans when I was 12 and I, I go back, you know, many, many times a year because my father's still there. But um, I never like, you know, I haven't been to Mardi Gras since I was 12. Mm-hmm. I never, I never like went to Bourbon Street and did all that stuff in New Orleans. I never, you know what I mean? Like I just never had those experiences. So I really, I know the food of New Orleans. I know the landmarks. I know the parks. I know the stuff I would have done as a child. But I don't know, um, you know, that other stuff. I just don't know. And I, I imagine it must have been such a really fun place to try to describe, especially um, like in the in the Evelyn storyline, you know, where you can um, where there it is a little bit more like picturesque at times, you know, the, the family house is so grand and all of that kind of stuff. But like because uh, I, I feel like so many cities are now like just kind of variations on Brooklyn or something, you know, and, but I feel like oh, New yeah. Orleans is like so solidly New Orleans. And I don't think there are very many cities that like have an identity as unique as that. I know. It's funny that you said that though, because I was, who was I talking to? Oh, at this panel, this, this guy who had just moved from Brooklyn to New Orleans. And I guess there's a bunch of that now. I know there's a bunch of that now. He was telling me that um, he's starting to feel like uptown New Orleans is just like Brooklyn. Oh, no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He told me that. I mean, it's so gentrified now. I mean, it's just such a different city post-Katrina. But even in the past probably seven years, you know, mm-hmm. it's just different. When I go there now, I feel like, oh, okay, this is very similar to San Francisco or Oakland. Mm-hmm. But in those little pockets. But, um, but no, it was, it, was, it was really, I always say it was it was kind of like a, a, I feel like I cheated in a way basing my first book in New Orleans because the city just provides you with so much of its own, you know, descriptive power. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it has so much of its own culture in terms of music and food and language that you really, it it provides your book with so much easy texture. You don't have to work for it. Like Mm -hmm. just, just presenting the facts of New Orleans it it brought it to another level without me. That wasn't me. That was just me presenting the city. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so that was, that was really nice. And I don't know, I'm thinking my new thing is I'm thinking that I'll base all my books in New Orleans, but you just, you know, you have to like think about different angles to describe because in a kind of freedom, New Orleans was a character. I truly see that that, that was a character. Like it, it, um, it declined just like the characters did, just like the generations did. So um, I have to think about different angles to present now. Uh, so it's not, you know, repeating material, but um, I, I'm thinking now I want to base all of the, the books in New Orleans, at least the second one. I love that idea. Yeah. Do you, um, I was reading an essay of yours where you referenced the second one. I'm not sure. It's totally okay if you don't want to talk about it. A lot of times when stuff's in progress, people decline and that's fine. But if you want to talk about what you're working on. I don't mind talking about it. I, I finished it. and um, Oh, well, great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it'll be out next fall. Okay. Yeah, so I'm excited. I'm really excited about it. And um, it's about, there's one storyline 
where a former slave is living next door to a white woman um, and they form a relationship and she ultimately learns that the woman is um, involved in the women's branch of the KKK. Mm-hmm. And then there's another contemporary storyline um, where a black woman's white mother-in-law moves in with her and begins exhibiting this really erratic behavior that gradually um, comes to resemble racism. And there's, there's, there's an unexpected parallel between these two storylines that becomes clearer and clearer as the story goes on. That sounds fantastic. Does it have a title yet? Oh, thank you. I don't know what it's, I, I think it has a title, but they're, they're not sure. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> um, something I was also really curious to hear your, your thoughts about is, and I, and I love that you said, cause I have this problem too of, of actually plotting, like, you know, the, the episode that went up today with Robin MacArthur, we talk about how like we left our own devices would just like write interiority forever and like nothing would happen. <laughs> I know, isn't that funny? And I wouldn't even know that anything was wrong with I it. I know, I would be like, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I was really curious, especially when you're dealing with such a huge span of time by the time you take all of these characters into account, how did you narrow down like when you were kind of dropping in on their lives and, and what scenes we were seeing, what parts of their lives oh, we were seeing? Oh gosh, that's a really good question. So, um, well, I knew with, I knew with Evelyn and Renard, I wanted to, I wanted to base their storyline on their relationship and, um, and their love story is really like the core of that section. It's just, it's, it starts, the section starts when they meet and it ends at their wedding. Right. So I knew I wanted to use that love story as, um, as like a guidepost for the, for the reader. And so the reader can kind of follow along with that section, um, with that love story as, as the motor um, carrying them through and, and, you know, things happen in between. So it's not just a straight line. It goes up and down and up and down and up and down. And that's kind of how I thought about that section is just that the, the peaks and the dips of that section, I want to have basically be centered around that love story. And with Jackie's section, I thought the most interesting, I'm trying to think, did I realize this early or did I have to come to this? I mean, I had a crazy, crazy Jackie section at first where she was like looking for her, her father was a cheater and she found out that she had a half sister and she was following her half sister around the city and she found out her half sister was a stripper and they started hanging out. I mean, it was so crazy. So I wrote that whole thing out and then I was like, that's not working. So I had to, like I said, I had to go into a different area of the character's life. And the way I did that was I, um, I, when I was researching ways in which this decline happens, um, cause it's, 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 it's something that happens all, it's not just my family, it happens all over the country. So I was thinking like what happens between the forties and the present time to create this discrepancy in, um, in these two generations lives. And I kept getting pointed toward, um, the eighties and the war on drugs mm-hmm. and the crack epidemic. And, um, once I figured that out, that that was, that really has been responsible for a lot of the uh, regression in our community. Um, I was like, okay, I guess her husband, cause at first I think I had Jackie's husband cheating on her. Mm. And I, I was like, that's not the story. The story is he's on crack. And, um, once I realized that, then, um, 
I thought the most interesting part of that story would be whether or not she's going to take him back. Like, you know, if, if he's rehabilitated, you know, quote unquote, and then he comes to her and he asks for a second chance or a fifth chance or whatever it is, is she going to take him back? I thought that was probably the most interesting part of the story. And then, and then I knew all that time that, you know, how it would, how it would ultimately end Mm -hmm. for TC section. I think that was, well, I remember walking, I was walking in Lafayette reservoir with my husband and we walked and it's probably like, I don't know, it's probably like two miles or something. And we walked it. And by the end of the walk, we had plotted out the whole TC section. Mm. Uh huh. And that was a joint effort. We plotted out that TC section. I always say him, I always tell him you helped me with, with the plot for that TC section because it's so, you know, I mean, I don't know if I would have been capable of coming up with all that stuff. It's so plot heavy. The TC section, if you look at it, is very plot heavy. Like, he gets out of jail and, and, you know, his friend wants him to take one last turn at dealing drugs. And it's just very, it's kind of like beyond me. I don't know if I would have been able to do that, but it's just a basic plot line. So he, he kind of helped me with, with figuring that out. But I think I always knew I would start with him getting out of jail. Cause I think that's the most interesting part of his story is mm-hmm. getting out of jail and what is, what's going to happen next. And I think, cause I think it's always good to start with an inciting event or like, um, you know, like someone going to a new city or I, I think whatever it is, I think it's always good to, um, to start with some kind of inciting event. Yeah. But, um, that, so that's what I tried to do with each of those storylines is to start with the events that, that really, you know, would make or break their lives, the choices they would have to make that would make or break their lives. I also love incidentally that that happened. Walking is such a good tool for that. I love that. I love that while you were walking, that happened. I know. I, I've noticed that too, or, or just being outside or running or whatever it is. Like if I have a question about something, I'll go and run and then I'll just, I'll be, I'll finish it and I'll be done. Yeah. That's taken me a really long time to come to terms with. Um, because I think I, I have very kind of ingrained capitalist ideas of efficiency that like so much of writing is actually not writing at all. I know. And and you're like, you should be working and that's going to waste time and you only have an hour. Right. Yeah, I know. I'm the same way. And then, yeah. Yeah. And so much of so much of writing, as you just said, is just like right now, I really want to get back into writing because I just finished something and I'm I'm just kind of bored. And I I just have to take the next three weeks and just not be writing Mm -hmm. um, for various reasons. And that feels so inefficient to me. But I really should just sit with it and let it brew. And I think that's so important, you know, to just let it brew and to take those breaks. This episode of WMFA is brought to you by Scrivener. Tailor-made for long projects, Scrivener is like an extension of my brain at this point in the novel writing process. I talk to myself in drafts, probably too much, using comments and inline annotations. And I avoid my fear of the delete button with the snapshot feature, which lets me save drafts before making changes. Scrivener is as organized as I wish I were. It lets me change the structure of my ever-sprawling manuscript easily and view it large-scale on the corkboard feature, or small-scale, line-by-line. I also love the robust labeling system, which I currently have color-coded according to character point of view, so that I can see at a glance if my narrative is out of balance. But that's just my process. Whether you plan out your structure first, or dive in, draft, and then restructure later, The integrated outliner and corkboard allow Scrivener to bend to work your way. 
Scrivener unites everything you need to write, research, and arrange long documents in one single powerful app. At its heart is a simple ring binder metaphor that allows you to gather material and flick between different parts of your manuscript, notes, and references with ease. And once your draft is complete, you can export to a variety of popular formats for publication or submission. WMFA listeners can get 20% off a regular copy of Scrivener for Windows or Mac OS. Just use the code WMFA at checkout at www.literatureandlatte.com. How did you handle um, making writing a novel of ideas, but it's still ultimately being a novel of people and and kind of working the sociopolitical issues in in a way that doesn't you know mm-hmm. turn everybody in the character into just like an anthropomorphized idea of something you know um, so I wondered how you handled that, but also you know frankly, if at any point you were like oh shit, I have to write about Jim Crow or like, oh my God, how am I going to handle the crack it? Like, like these are such huge concepts, you know? Yeah, that's a good question. Huh. Um, well, I think it helped to, to come up with those little stories for each section. It, it just kind of helped it be more manageable. Like, like, you know, I, for, for Evelyn's section, it's in, it's in the forties and it is during Jim Crow but I'm really writing this love story. And to think about it that way was really helpful for me because I didn't, I just, it just felt really manageable. And then incidentally, because they're in new Orleans in the forties and it's the Jim Crow South, she's not going to be able to go into a certain park. And if they're at the movie theater, it's going to take longer for them to exit because um, they'll be seated on the Negro balcony. So we know these things and I can slip them in incidentally, Mm -hmm. but because I just was thinking of writing this love story, I think it was easier to just kind of sneak them in and, and have them be little features, but not, not completely overwhelm or swallow the very universal story that I wanted to tell, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And same with, with all of that stuff. I, you know, actually I just taught a class on, on um, the fact that a kind of freedom was three love stories. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I, I've thought about all these other authors who have done it. For instance, An American Marriage by Tiare Jones. She's writing about mass incarceration, mm-hmm. but it's a love story. Um, and there are so many other great examples of this. But um, I think that's a great way to to talk about something big, but present it in a way that the readers will sort of forget that you're hitting them over the head with a message. And they'll just kind of get lost and the, the the nuances of whatever particular story you're telling and with a kind of freedom it truly was three love stories there's a love story with tc and his um and his baby's mom and there's a love story with jackie and her husband of course and then there's evelyn and um, renard evelyn and renard feels like the most standard one but they they're all essentially just love stories and then tc also has of course is he going to go back to jail? Is he not? So that's kind of looming over his head. They all have these peripheral stories as well, but basically at the core, they're love stories. And so I think, and it doesn't have to be a love story, but any kind of story that's specific to an individual, but that speaks to a universal issue and that'll speak to an audience in a universal way is, is a way to, um, to tell these big, big stories, but make it seem, um, identifiable and not like preachy, you know? Right. I love that too, because it's so, you know, I want to be careful how I say this because, because obviously people are aware of their situations and, and take agent, take action, you know, when they can. 
But, but there is a kind of normalizing effect almost when you're yeah. in, you know, it, there is just at some point you do just have to live your day-to-day life also. Yeah. And it, I think it removes the, it, it helps it to not be pathological. Uh-huh. You know? Absolutely. When you're really getting into the, and I think that's what people run into when they're writing about communities that they're not familiar with. Because for instance, this is, this is, this is something my brother-in-law told me, like, he was reading this book where he learned that everyone assumes that people's lives who are different and who are slightly challenged or more challenged than theirs are just totally terrible. And, Oh my God, we would hate it. We would hate it. But the truth is people get, people adjust to whatever situation they're in and they live, they live this very similar lives to you on the inside, you Mm -hmm. know? And so I think that's, that's kind of what it does when you go into a, a little story instead of the whole sociological issue. It's like you realize, oh, you know, it's really the same thing. And it's not to undermine the challenges that are um, confronting people because these are serious challenges and they do, need, they do need to be addressed. But on the other hand, it denies their humanity if you don't recognize the fact that they're still thriving. Yes, absolutely. I really love the way you put that. Yeah, 100%. And how did the, how did the book, you know, you talked a lot about, or you talked already about your editor kind of uh, chiming in with advice about, you know, how to organize them, but how did it, how did it kind of progress and evolve edit to edit? Oh, that's a really good question. And I love to talk about that. Well, you know, I had written a book before a kind of freedom that was about a girl in the Dominican. She was, she's an African-American girl from new Orleans who goes to the Dominican Republic to help this struggling community. And she's there for, um, she's, she's there and she gets completely triggered by the colorism she encounters in the Dominican Republic that's targeted at Dominicans of Haitian descent. And it reminds her of her upbringing in New Orleans. So instead of being able to help this group, she ends up harming them before she leaves because she feels so disempowered. So I'd written this book. I worked on it for four years. I got an agent like a year and a half into it. She said she would be able to publish it. Of course she, um, she wanted to publish it, but she couldn't sell it to anybody. And so, um, after like a year and a half with her, so this is about three years later after I started working on it, um, I decided to part ways with her and just kind of start from square one. And so I found myself in the situation where I didn't have, um, I didn't have an agent. I didn't, I had this manuscript, but no one wanted to buy it. And we had submitted it to, you know, many publishers, at least 100 agents. Wow. Yeah. So I met Jane Vandenberg through my sister-in-law. And she was telling me that she was about to do this year-long um, narrative program with the Jurassic residency. And the idea was that you would submit 30 pages a month to her and she would edit them and send them back to you. And then by the end of the year, you would have a book. So um, I decided, you know, I didn't really want to do it because I felt like I wanted to focus on the Dominican Republic book. But um but, you know, it wasn't going anywhere. And I realized that at that point. So I um, I decided to just work with her. And I always had the idea of the three generation New Orleans story. So I had to start on something new. Those were kind of the guidelines of the program. So I decided to start on that. So she was the editor for that, Jane Vandenberg. Um, she did all the editing for that book. And, and um, she did it, you know, within that program. It wasn't, I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a publisher or anything like that. We just worked together. And then 
maybe like three months in, I had given her, I had asked her if I could give her like 50 pages a month instead of 20 because I get neurotic about stuff. I get really obsessed and I get really into stuff. So I was just trying to finish quicker. Mm-hmm. And um, she said that was okay. So she had, after about three months, she had read like more than half of it. And she was like, I think I want to give this to my husband. Now her husband is Jack Shoemaker at Counterpoint. Mm. So I thought, well, gosh, if she's going to give it to Jack, I need to finish it. So I, I finished it by June. It's the program I started in February. I finished it by June. I gave it to her. I waited a, about a month because she needed to read it. And then a month later, she's, she had given it to Jack and she said, Jack really likes it. We need to get you an agent. Wow. So it was kind of all backwards, you know? So, so they helped me get an agent and then the agent helped me sign with them. And, um, and really most of the editing at that point, well, you know what? That's not true. She, I was going to say most of the editing at that point was done, but that's not true because we still had that very weak Jackie section. Mm-hmm. Um, but I used Jane's edits and, you know, and, and my husband's too, really to kind of, to, to, to rework that section. And, um, and so that's, that was the book. We worked on the, the second section a little bit more and then it was done. It was very quick. Yeah. And I think I signed with them in September and in August, the book was out and, you know, by March, they weren't accepting any more changes. I don't remember specifically, but it was like, they had sent me the first pass pages and I was like, I, I did my best on it, but I just had a baby. Yeah. Um, I was like, it's okay because I'm going to get another round. And then they sent me the galleys. (laughs) Wait, what happened? I missed a step, (laughs) but I think, I think it was okay. Do you feel like, um, at this point, like you had to write the first book before you could write this one? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I, I honestly think, um, well, you know, I say, yeah, I'm not sure about that. Probably. What I will say is I learned so much. So, I mean, I think it would have taken me longer to write the second book if I hadn't spent so many years on that first book, because I just learned so much about writing and most of it self-taught because I I didn't have an MFA or anything like that. I would do little conferences here and there, but I mostly was just reading and figuring stuff out. And I spent so many years doing that. And so I think, yeah, I think it would have just taken me longer to do the second book. but. But on the other hand, I, I want to say, I feel like that, that three generation thing that I, I had that in my head from the beginning, but I probably wouldn't have known how to tell the stories. Mm. I probably wouldn't have known. Like I knew the three generations, but I probably wouldn't have known how to tell the stories if I hadn't spent so much time on that first book. But I mean, and then it carries over because even the second book, I just feel like, oh man, I'm really, I really learned so much just from those years, you know, those many years. Yeah. Of reading and all that. I mean, even just like the trust factor of that must be huge. Like it comes, you know, that like you just kind of have to keep going forward. Yes. That's what I, I mean, if I understand what you're saying, that's what I, that's, I mean, I talk about that all the time with people. I just feel like it's, the book was great. I'm glad that the book came out and that was so important for me. But more than the book, it really was about learning to trust myself and to and learning to have faith in um, 
I just always had a feeling that it was going to work out, but it was very difficult for me to leave my job and, and just, just rely on that faith for so many years because it was never, it, it didn't pan out for so many years, but I just kept hearing this inner voice telling me to keep moving forward. And whenever I would feel like I needed to stop, I would get some kind of sign that I needed to keep moving forward. And, um, that has changed my life that just that the knowledge that whenever I have a feeling like that, I need to listen to it, Mm, you know? Absolutely. Have you, is that something that you've had to kind of cultivate? Like, were you always attuned to that voice? I, well, Hmm, that's a really good question. I, I remember when I was, I used to work in a law firm and I remember when I got there the first day, I knew I wasn't supposed to be there. I had a voice telling me I wasn't supposed to be there. And I, and I would hear it every time I walked down the hallway, I would, I just, I just knew that that was not a place for me to be, but I stayed there for two years. Now I think I wouldn't stay as long, Mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't stay as long in a place like that. And I'm not talking about the law firm, but just in any place where I, but you know, it, you know, it's still, it's still hard to act on faith when it's not logical because I'm in, I have something going on now where I know I need to make a certain decision about it. And, um, I'm like, Oh, but it doesn't make sense. And I know it doesn't make sense, but I also know it's the right decision. So I'm kind of putting it off because I don't want to seem illogical, but, um, you are really, I don't know if if you're into astrology, but you're really speaking to the Gemini. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) That's like so (laughs) indecisive and very much in my head and always like, well, but I need the plan. I need the, I need the logical steps. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, On that note, you, I read this uh, great essay of yours in Publishers Weekly that I definitely will link to on the show page, but um, I loved this sentiment and I wanted to ask you to expand on it. Um, You write, I always wanted to be a writer, but it wasn't until I began to enjoy writing that people wanted to read my story. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. And and it's all about, you know, I think this thing that so many of us struggle with of just like, you know, okay, well, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to force myself to write and then every, it's going to be so strained and it's so hard, but damn it, I'm writing. And like Mm -hmm. that, that idea of just kind of like holding it all a little bit more lightly is something that I'm really working on, but it's like work. Yeah. Well, you know, it makes me think about the second book that um, that I believe is out next fall. It's interesting because I wanted that book to be about, I wanted to write about the boarding school experience for black people. I went to boarding school, but I was a day student, but I saw my friends, you know, as boarders and it seemed like they just really struggled and seemed like in some cases they continue to struggle. And so I, I just wanted to, I still feel like I have a, I have a story in me at least about that experience, but I was trying to write that. And I, you know, and I was trying to, I don't know. I just was trying to write that for a while. And it felt like this story I should write, but it wasn't really coming out. And I took a break from it and decided to just write something random that came to me, but I didn't take it seriously at all. It was like, um, it was like, (laughs) it was kind of based on this woman I had seen on Facebook, who's this Facebook personality kind of person. And I don't know how to describe it, but her spirit inspired me to write about this former sharecropper. And I know that sounds really weird, but it was just like her spirit it inspired another story in me about a woman in a totally different time, but who seemed like that kind of person. And that's when I started playing around with this random sharecropper story that 
I really didn't think was going anywhere. And that's another thing I'll say is like writing when you don't think it's going anywhere is the best ever. And that's, that's a lot of times I've started to realize that's the best writing I produce is when I'm not trying to, to meet an expectation I have or someone else has. So I was just playing around with it. I didn't think anything was going to come of this, but I was like, I do have this urge to do it. So I'll do it. And that ended up being the best part of the second book is this sharecropper story, in my opinion. And I don't know where that came from. It's truly out of nowhere. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. I'm back. No, you're so fine. Um, (laughs) What you just said about writing that doesn't lead to anything. um, I find that another time that really that rings true for me is um, I've been trying to shift my perspective in terms of like thinking I don't have enough time to write, you know? So, so instead of like, if I don't, if I really don't just being like, okay, just sit down here for like 15 minutes and like set a timer. And I think that something about those little bursts is really like, really just takes the pressure off of my brain in some way. I I should do that. I bet you're right. Cause that's where you really want to be coming from. It's like, you know, I have this time and it's going to be fun and it doesn't feel as strict or as, yeah. yeah. And you kind of get more of that feeling of like, you know how sometimes like you look down at the page and you're like, oh, that was all there, you know, but like you had no idea. <laughs> like, right. I feel exactly. like that's, that's maybe something that is really, that my brain really likes. Yeah. That's a really great idea. I'm going to start doing that more. Let's talk a little bit about how you like to write and and what your writing life is like. Is that kind of your main priority at the moment? Yeah, I don't have a job. I just I just write, and then I have um, I have childcare like uh, six hours a day. So I usually for about four hours of the six hours, I'll just write or work on something related to. I mean, I do these little teaching gigs, so I'll do stuff like that prepare for stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, so I end up doing probably 20 hours a week of writing. That's great. Yeah, it's good. It's really great. I never had that much childcare. I just got it. Um, I guess in February and it's, it, it changed everything because I was able to be so much more efficient. And so I don't think I had even the book that I submitted just now, I don't think I had even started it. I mean, but no, that's not true. I had started it, but it was, you know, very raw. And then just with that time every week, I've been able to finish that book. And, um, and I have some stuff coming up in July. That's kind of a distraction, but I think when I, when I get back to it in the middle of July, um, you know, I, I, I stick to that schedule. I do about 20 hours of writing a week at least. So it makes it go faster. And, and it's not that, you know, I'll write whole like hundreds of pages that don't work and they don't go anywhere. And I just have to throw them away. Right. But maybe I'll go back to them later, but it's not that that doesn't happen anymore, but it's just that because I'm working every day, I can come, I recover from it more quickly. Mm-hmm. It's like that boarding school book that I was talking about. I wrote out a whole book, <laughs> the boarding school book. It just didn't work. But, um, so yeah, so yeah, I kind of I treat it like a job, and I always have. I always have treated it like a job since I left my law firm job. 
Yeah. And I think that that can be so hard too, just because, you know, it's not, I mean, I I don't want to, you know, speak for your family, but I know sometimes like mine doesn't totally understand what I do and like what I do during a day, you know, so that makes it really hard to legitimize it for yourself. It does. It's a very, that's a very, very, very like good point. And I mean, gosh, I'm just getting to the point now where I'm slightly, you know, confident in the fact that it is a job and slightly, you know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) It takes a lot to get there and people just don't, people don't, they don't, they just don't take it like it's a job. It doesn't feel like work to them. And I've, you know, I've come to realize I used to fight that so much. I really wanted that validation from the world that I was working. And, um, my new thing is like, you know, okay, they don't have to think of it as work because maybe in some ways it's not like, I'm trying to kind of have it both ways Mm -hmm. because I love what I do and I really look forward to it. And like, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not at the point where I have to do it for money. So maybe I shouldn't call it, you know, maybe it's kind of undermining what they're doing in the world. If I'm calling it work. Cause they, a lot of people who work and have jobs, they don't really like them and they're getting up to do them purely for money. And so, you know, I don't want to detract from, from what a challenge that can be. So maybe I should, you know, it does take a lot of effort of course, and, and it is work, but maybe I shouldn't try to have it be equated with a job. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's- yeah. I hear you. Yeah, it's hard because there is such a um, and I mean, like, you know, this is a this is a huge thing that I talk with other Appalachian writers with all the time that, or about all the time that like coming from a place that values labor, like hard yeah. labor so much. It's just really yeah. it's a really foreign concept. Right. And it's it's kind of it's like working class oppression. Too, yes. I think, where you're like, you have to be. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. You have to be doing something that you don't like that's purely for money in order for someone to think of it as, as work. And, um, yeah, I mean, certainly in my family, they, I think now they're starting to, to be more respectful of it. But I mean, for many years, I've heard them say in front of me, you know, Oh, she doesn't work. She's just home with the kids, you know, and they'll say, it doesn't matter if there's a book out or anything. They Mm -hmm. don't think of it that way. Mm -hmm. But, um, but that's okay. That's okay. So are you kind of get, are you a first thing in the morning writer? No. I mean, I want to be, but it doesn't matter. Like I don't have to do it first thing in the morning. So I kind of, my schedule usually is I have childcare. Well, my kids are out of school now, so it's different, Mm -hmm. but I have childcare in the afternoons while they're out for the summer. And, um, and so I just write at that time, like from 12 to to five or whatever. And, um, yeah, for me, it really doesn't matter. I mean, I, I actually, I will say this for that second book that I submitted. Um, there was a point where I could not figure out a section of it and I kept going back to it. I had gone back like four times to it and I couldn't figure it out and it just wasn't working. And so for that section, I started waking up at 5 a.m. or 4 a.m. Mm. even, 4 a.m. even, because I do think that you, you, I do think the best writing comes out at that time. Mm-hmm. So I, I did do that when I was really stuck on something. But otherwise, if it's just like, you know, standard writing, then I can do it whenever. That's so, um, that's so enviable. I feel like, well, I don't, I don't know. I wonder some too, so how many times, how much I've just kind of like convinced myself that this is true. But like I, my default 
is like, oh, if I can't write first thing in the morning, I just can't do it. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But maybe that's just a way to get out of doing it. No, but but no, that might be right for you because I think everybody's different. Yeah. You know, yeah. That might be right. And you may be like, yeah, like I think I think for stuff that sh- that's really hard for me, it is better for me to do it in the morning. But if it's just like a standard, you know, if it's, if it's something I, I have figured out. Then right. It's okay. Yeah. Do you like, um, do you write longhand? Are you on the computer? No, I type. Yeah. I type. Yeah. Yeah. But I used to, I mean, I used to write longhand a long, long time ago, but I just, I just forced myself to get out of it. I guess, um, to wrap up this, the question I always like to ask people at the end of our conversation, um, what does creative satisfaction look like to you right now? Oh man. Um, I feel so creatively satisfied right now. I, I really, I like, I'm so grateful for it because I just remember those years when I didn't have it and what it was when I didn't have it was, um, just this burning urge to have people read my work and identify with my work and be moved by my work, but there was no one to read it. and. And there, and I didn't know if ever those readers were going to come, and I didn't know if I deserved to have those readers. And now I feel like I have those readers, and it doesn't have to be a million of them, but I have those readers that that really are identifying with my work. They they know where I was coming from when I wrote it. They know what I was trying to get across. Um, it resonates with them. It moves them. Um, and I love that it, it has a social impact and people are recognizing that. And I just, uh, I couldn't be more creatively satisfied. I really, I, I just could not be. When I was working on my books before the first one was published, there, you, I was, I was writing all the time, but in the back of my mind, whenever I was writing, I would be thinking, nobody's ever going to read this. Mm. This is a waste of time. I would have to fight that thought the entire time I was writing. And so even though it was a pleasurable experience to be able to write, I, I always dreaded it too, because I knew that it was a battle that I was going to be up against these thoughts that would creep in. And I don't have those thoughts anymore. Now I can just write and it's pleasurable. And I was starting this third project that I'm working on. And I was like, well, let me just try this weird idea. I had this random weird idea for one of the sections. I was like, why not just try it? I mean... You know, I feel like it takes away a lot of that pressure and a lot of the um a lot of the self-doubt. And and so yeah, so I just couldn't feel and it, it enables and facilitates so much more creativity. When you feel creatively satisfied, you can be more creative. And I just I couldn't feel more creatively satisfied and I feel so incredibly grateful because I I remember vividly how it felt all those years to be working and working and working and not seeing any fruit. Definitely. And I love that. That's so encouraging too. Cause I feel like, you know, I, as someone who still hears that voice, like that is, that is so nice to know that there is a place where that pressure take eases off a little bit. It does. I mean, I, you know, you still have like, you, it, it kind of like you get into a new thing where you're like comparing yourself to other writers and whatever, but that's, I don't feel like that's, it doesn't hit me as hard as I know it hits other writers because I'm really grateful. I try to just be really grateful and yeah, it does go. I mean, I don't, I don't, I feel like I don't have that voice anymore. I mean, sometimes I'm like, Oh, 
No, it's different. I mean, I'm sorry. It's just completely different now. It's completely different. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier. Writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.